The Houston Chronicle has a, uh, a website dedicated to career counseling, all of the basic stuff, how to write a resume, what to do at a job interview, what salary ranges are for the kind of career that you might be considering. Here's what to expect then if you pursue this kind of career. They have a list of careers and potential um, opportunities and, and what you might do if you follow this particular career. And one of those potential careers is this one. What are the duties of a shepherd? That's on the Houston Chronicle. I thought that was intriguing, that there's a need and a call for shepherds, and they describe on their website the, about a 475-word article on, on what's entailed in being one who cares for sheep or flocks of any kind, and talks about shepherds um, providing food, getting the, the animals to food, providing them with protection, uh, giving vaccinations, shearing the sheep, and all of those. But early on, it says in the article, a shepherd's primary responsibility is the safety and welfare of the flock. And it goes on in that article and says the shepherd has to move the sheep from time to time to where there's fresh food, fresh and, and, and plentiful supply, must protect the flock from, from dangerous predators who, who would prey on them and who would even chase the sheep to the point of exhaustion. And also a shepherd must be on guard, as it describes, for, um, for sickness within the flock, for, for disease that gets into the flock and spreads through the flock and can destroy it. If you would turn to Acts chapter 20. And here in Acts 20, this will be our final um, study in Acts 20. We've been here for just a little while, but this is Paul's farewell to the elders, to the shepherds of the church at Ephesus. And I want you to look especially just to begin with at verse 28. He is speaking to these elders that he has ministered to, that he has helped bring up, that he has taught. And now he is saying farewell to them. In Acts 20, 28, he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Put on the slide up there, both the ESV and the New American Standard translation of that. I put the NAS because there's a word that I think the ESV misses on when they say to care for the church of God. The NAS says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The job of an overseer, of an elder, is to shepherd the church of God. That's, that's the word Paul uses there, verb form of the noun for shepherd. So like a, a painter paints or a cook cooks, a shepherd shepherds, and that's what he's using there. That's the language he's using there. Peter uses the, the same kind of language in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he exhorts his fellow elders and he urges them to, again, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Both references here in Acts and then again in Peter stress Two elements that we're going to talk about this morning. One is the shepherding part. The other is that this flock has an owner who is God. It is his flock. And so even in the Old Testament, when God speaks of leaders, not just necessarily religious leaders, even on the political side, he uses this kind of language of shepherds to communicate the kind of leadership that he desires, that which cares for, that which nurtures. And so in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23, God condemned hateful shepherds, shepherds who did their job 
poorly. And, and he said this, he promised punishment for them. And then he said, Jeremiah 23, verse 3, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. It's a picture of God again calling it his flock, the gathering of my flock, as he says, and the appointment of his shepherds who would care for the sheep, who would go after them so that there are not missing sheep because shepherds are instruments of God's care. That's what they are called to do and to function as stewards, which, which means this is God's possession and I have been called to, to serve it and to minister to it and take responsibility. And Primarily to follow, as, as Peter said in 1 Peter 5, the chief shepherd. There's a, there's a pattern for all of this, and that's Jesus Christ. And he becomes the chief shepherd under which all other shepherds in local churches serve. So here in Acts 20, Paul is saying goodbye to these dearly beloved brothers, men that he has trained, that God has used in the raising up of, of elders, of shepherds and in whose hands he's ultimately trusting the care of that local church. And so his, his parting words here are, are deeply poignant to any man who has served as an elder in a local church or who aspires to do so. Now, that said, before we consider this passage, let me, let me first exhort you, if you are not an elder and never see yourself as, as being an elder, you might be tempted at this point to say, oh, well, this is for the elders, so... I can do a little scrolling during this time. Let, let me encourage you against that and, and appeal to you several reasons why I think this really matters. First of all, this is the word of God. All of us who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior should meditate on these truths at minimum because we want to see what scripture says about those who shepherd in, in the flock. What, what are God's expectations of them? How do we, how do we understand what elders should function as. Secondly, the passage gives charges to elders that are in the context of threats to the flock, threats to the local church. And so all of that should matter to all of us that there are real threats against the body of Christ. Third, I would say to you as an elder here at Grace Bible Church, I, I want you to to love a passage like this and meditate on it because I want you to pray better for the elders here, for myself and the other seven men who serve as elders because we covet your, your praying. And many of you do and you tell us that and we are grateful for that and it is a source of tremendous joy. But studying passages like this one, I think, helps to focus even better on what it is to pray for on, on, on specific areas to pray for your elders as we see here in Acts 20. The last thing I would say is this passage has application for every believer in, in Jesus Christ who is devoted to a local church, as you should be. Because even if you don't have the accountability of an elder, that specific role, the charge that's here speaks of truth that is still applicable to you. There's still truth that you can take to heart and that you can seek to live out. And so, here we go. Three, three things, three threats that I see in this passage that I think Paul, as he's speaking to the elders, three threats he's trying to identify for them, and three responses back to those threats, three, three ways of dealing with those threats. I'm going to read the whole thing from verse 25 on down to the end, and then we'll go back and, and, and isolate some of these. Acts 20, verse 25. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day 
that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me in all things. I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. What a sweet moment that Luke is giving us as he gives us this glimpse at this port city as they have gathered. And they are paying tribute in some respect to a man that God used in their midst to bring to them the, the teaching of God's word, to bring to them the word of life. And they are knowing that he is now going away to ministry that will take him further away, that may well lead to incarceration. And so he is not going to be coming back through Asia again. And so they are saying farewell, knowing that the next time they see him, it will no doubt be in eternity in the presence of Christ. But he, he gives to them these threats. He warns them of at least three things that, that they need to keep in mind as they care for the sheep. There's the threat of inadequate nourishment, the threat of dangerous predators, and this threat of sickness that would crop up from within the flock and destroy the flock. Verse 26, he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all. He sort of sets that as the beginning to this closing charge. I'm innocent of the blood of all. He, he's probably hearkening back at that point to the Old Testament and to Ezekiel and to language used by the prophet Ezekiel. When, when God commissions Ezekiel to be a prophet, God's voice to the people, God says this in Ezekiel 3, verse 17, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. There's the same language that Paul is using when he says, I am innocent of the blood of all. It's a recognition that that this calling to, to speak the word of God, to proclaim what God has declared, is that of a watchman that comes with responsibility. The, the watchman in the city in ancient times, we, we're used to all the alarm systems and the, the cameras and the ring and all the different things that we have that, that watch for danger. In those days, the watchman stood on the city wall and he peered out into the horizon and he watched for potential enemies who were coming. And his job was when he saw one to immediately notify the city so that people could prepare. If he failed at that, and an enemy came and surprised the city and destroyed it, it would be as if he himself was guilty of manslaughter for having not warned the people. 
God is using that language to say to Ezekiel, and, and Paul is picking up on that language here, that God is pronouncing judgment because of sin. And if you don't communicate that, if God speaks that judgment and you as, as the one speaking to the people on behalf of God don't warn them, then you are allowing them to go to their own destruction. You are standing by and watching them go right to their own death. And he says, for that, you will be held responsible. Their blood will be on your hand for failing to speak God's truth to God's people. Paul's picking that up here with this threat of spiritual malnourishment, not, not feeding the flock. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We know and believe that man needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. He needs to know Jesus in order to live. But then so too as a believer in Jesus Christ, we need God's word to feed on. We need God's word to be read and taught and, and used to help strengthen us and to grow us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so the word must be taught. And that's why Paul immediately gives us the antidote to this. The, the failure is to be inadequate in nourishing the flock. The response is verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The, the solution to, to malnourishment, to inadequate nourishment of the flock is to teach the word. It is to, to bring the whole counsel of God to bear. It is to speak throughout all of scripture and, and, and to serve the people by teaching them all throughout God's word. It is to encourage and exhort and rebuke and, and confront sin and to speak God's truth. In the book of Amos, which deals with a lot of injustice going on amongst the Jewish people, how the, the rich are mistreating the poor, in Amos chapter 8, God speaks a word of, of judgment against those who are rich and they are trampling on the poor to the point that, that some are starving, that some are going hungry, and God is condemning this, this injustice. And his judgment, he says, will be a famine, but not the ordinary kind of famine we think of. Amos 8, verse 11, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And God is just reemphasizing the need for his word and that to be apart from it is to be famished. It is to starve. It is, we, we need to hear from God. We need him to speak as he does through the scripture. We need his word to be taught. And if God's people are not being consistently taught from throughout God's word, then, then something is wrong. Something is severely missing. And that's why it needs to be taught and applied. That's, one of the things we, we, we try to do here, and it, and, it, and it goes back to long before I ever got here and, and to, to, to faithful leaders who shepherded here, and that is to bring the word of God to bear in all that we do, in all of the ministry that we engage in, whether it's children's ministry or youth ministry or home groups or Bible studies, that, that we are ultimately coming back to communicating God's truth to bringing to bear light on what his word says, because we're sheep who need it to survive. And when the, when the local church compromises on the word of God or neglects it or substitutes worldly wisdom for it, then there is threat to the flock. So inadequate nourishment is one. 
The antidote is faithfully preach, teach, bring the whole counsel, declare the whole counsel of God. Speak from throughout Scripture from all of this truth that he has given to us. All right, two threats, and then they, these two go together in these next verses we're going to read. Verse 28 again, pay careful attention to yourselves and the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There's the first one, dangerous predators. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. There's the other threat, the one from within. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears." Dangerous predators from the outside and, and sickness that comes within, that, that forms within and, and creeps up and destroys the flock from within. The language that he uses here for dangerous predators is something that we almost in our culture and with the freedom that we have, I think sometimes we can almost see this as hyperbole. It is carefully chosen language. It is the word of God and it is speaking to the threat. When Paul says these who are coming are fierce wolves who are bent on destroying the flock. They're not bent on just sort of coming in and, and poking at it. They want to wreck it. They want to attack the gospel and its foundations. They want to go after those who, who speak God's truth. These wolves are avowed enemies of Christ and his followers. They are not subtle. They love darkness. They hate truth. They believe that the, the word of God is, is foolishness and that people who follow after it are weak fools who need something to rely on. And they hate it. Philippians 3 speaks to this same sort of description. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These are predators who live for themselves. They are hungry to satisfy their own sensual desires and they are not compelled that there's anything wrong with their desires. As a matter of fact, they glory in them. They, they find glory in things that should bring shame, in evil and sin, and instead they brag about it. And that's why they despise the Bible. They would trample on it. They hate holiness. And we are naive to think that there are not fierce wolves who would do anything they could to silence the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We certainly see it in places around the world where the gospel is silenced. We would be naive to think that there's not that same spirit that is at work even in our own country, in our own area. Nine years ago, in 2012, Christian theologian D.A. Carson wrote a book on, on tolerance and intolerance that I don't know if we had all thought about quite so clearly as he had nine years ago. We all have now in the, in the last year in terms of cancel culture and all of those things. But what, what Carson was writing was accurate at the time and, and only prophetic of, of how much worse things would get. Carson argued there's a, a, the old sort of standard definition of tolerance is the idea that, that advocates for free expression of ideas and beliefs. People are free to, to say what they want and to express their ideas, and you can speak your mind and state your ideas and announce your beliefs even if others don't like them and don't agree with them and, 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 and even find them bothersome in, in some sense. That's okay. You're allowed tolerance says, I can recognize your right to talk, to express your beliefs and, and your opinions, even if they're different from mine. 
His point was, though, that the, the new tolerance marks a shift from accepting the existence of differing ideas, the fact that different ideas are there, to now the expectation that tolerance means you must accept different points of view, especially in terms of religion and politics. Carson says it this way, to accept that a different or opposing position exists and deserves the right to exist is one thing. To accept the position itself means that one is no longer opposing it. The new tolerance suggests that actually accepting another's position means believing that position to be true or at least as true as your own. There's a fundamental problem for that for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ because Christianity makes exclusive truth claims about the existence of a God who is one, who is the only God, a God who is creator, to whom all of the universe and our lives owe allegiance, a God whom we have sinned against and whom we stand opposed to, and his son, Jesus Christ, who is the only means of being reconciled to this God, of being made right with him. We believe that it is through Christ and the gospel alone that man's sin is addressed and he is made right with God. And so fundamentally then, to believe Biblical Christianity means we cannot accept as true the religious views of atheists or Muslims or the, the latest thing now is progressive Christianity. Google that one. Um, and and the progressive Christianity, the, the first tenet that one of the websites that sort of touts progressive Christianity, the first tenet goes like this. We believe that following the path and teachings of Jesus can lead to an awareness of the sacred and the oneness and unity of all life. And we affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness of life and that we can draw from our diverse sources of wisdom in our spiritual journey. It feels like there should be some kind of floating sort of music behind as you read that, except that this is horrible lying stuff. They're saying that the Bible is just another sort of helpful spiritual guide, and Jesus is just a really good, helpful spiritual guide, and, and you can use them, and you can sort of draw from them some things, and, and some stuff from over here and over there, and you can use that all to find peace and unity, and that is the epitome of fierce wolves cloaked in sheep's clothing, who are bent on destroying the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're saying, ah, ultimately anything goes. and We all get to this good place in the end. Those attacks will increase and grow. Christian evangelism will be labeled as a soft form of violence or brainwashing. Just read some of the comments and some of your online blogs. And, and that's where that language comes from, exactly from that. When they talk about evangelism, it's a soft form of violence. It's a kind of brainwashing into a sick cult. And, and Christian teaching that says anything other than about a deity who loves you is intolerant and hateful and bigoted. Dangerous predators will attack the flock. They will attack what we hold fast to. They will attack those who speak these things. Third thread is sickness that comes from within the flock and spreads throughout. Paul is, you talk about preaching the whole counsel of God, You've got Paul looking into the eyes of these beloved men who are elders and warning that even from among them there could arise those who would dare to harm the flock. 
who, who would lead the flock into error. He says that not only is the danger from persecutors outside, but he says from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. The word for twisted things is to, to take something and turn it, mislead, seduce, distort. It starts with a, a, a grain of truth, some kind of element of that which seems right, and then it's turned on its head. This, this sort of sickness within the flock can start when minor Biblical themes or issues of preference are now inflated to great and even divisive importance so that certain practices or, or teachings that are, are not priority issues in, with, within Christian doctrine now are inflated to the point that they begin to impinge on the gospel message and how we communicate the gospel even to, to blur the gospel to some degree can also happen when professing believers take what is clear biblical teaching and argue for ambiguity and compromise. Sure, the, the church has historically held this view, but, but we are a, a more enlightened people than our ancient brethren, and, and we understand better how to think about this and apply it, and it doesn't quite mean what it used to mean. So at one end, this could mean, and I'll, I'll go with safe illustrations on this one, at least I think. On one end, it would be the the believers who get caught up in the, the sort of end times date forecasting kind of stuff. Some geopolitical shift happens and immediately the response by some is this means Jesus is coming back this year or next year, maybe even on this specific date. That's taking up, the, the, the primary issue here is Jesus is returning and we believe Jesus is coming back. The date of Jesus' return is secondary by far and it's taking that secondary issue and now turning it into one of divisiveness. The flip side of that would be to take the significant key issue of the sufficiency of Scripture. That Scripture provides what we need for life and godliness, that it equips us and responds to us and helps us, and, and, and begin to dilute that and compromise that and weaken the application and say, God's Word doesn't really speak to these problems, and you need, you need other sources of wisdom along the way. Paul is looking into the eyes of these elders, and he's warning this could happen, guys, even from amongst yourselves. Stuff that, that maybe even with reasonably decent motivation, incentive, you, you get it twisted and you get an error and you start to develop that error and it turns into something that twists the truth and harms the flock. The fierce wolves may be obvious. The, the sickness that can form from inside when there's movement away from sound doctrine can be more subtle, but it's just as dangerous to the flock. So how do we confront these threats? We've already dealt with the first one. Inadequate nutrition is preaching, teaching, declaring the whole counsel of God's word. Here he gives two very clear antidotes to these. The first one's in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. And the other is in verse 31. Be alert as I have been for day and night. Be on the alert. Let me say this again. These commands are to elders, but by application... You need to get these, whether you're an elder or not. You need to see these and understand these and, and live in the good of them. Because the first one, pay careful attention. Speaks especially to those threats that are going to creep up from within the flock. And so what he's calling here is that there be a, a, attention to your own life. Watch your own life and watch the lives of your brethren in the flock. There's a critical aspect of shepherding, and that is being vigilant to look at yourself 
and, and, and to examine yourself and to be accountable and to have other people who are speaking into your life and who are also helping to hold you accountable and being vigilant about identifying things in you because sin is real. Temptation is powerful and self-deception happens. Even in those moments when we think we're right and we're riding in on the white horse doing exactly the right thing, we can be fully deceived in our hearts in terms of our motives and our intentions as to why we're doing what we're doing. We could be doing it for all the wrong reasons. And, and, and so that's why he says, keep watch on yourself and the flock. Be vigilant to examine your own heart because even your own rationalizing can take you astray. That word, that when it says pay careful attention, it's one word in the Greek, prosecco. Generally, it means to hold fast to something, but also used in a nautical sense. I know last week we talked about the not pulling down the, uh, the sails. This one is, is nautical in the sense of holding a ship on course is one way that this word is used. And so we think of large modern vessels, and they have all of the technology with GPS and satellites and all the things that help to keep them on course. But for most of us, if you've been in a smaller vessel, a smaller boat, a little skiff of some kind, you understand that course corrections are just what you are constantly doing. If you're, you're either working the rudder in the back or you're using a wheel, you are constantly, the boat is constantly wanting to move one direction or the other. And so you're constantly making little adjustments. And that's the, that's the idea here. Scripture's warning is that an elder team cannot leave its own direction up to chance and certainly cannot just let the flock let go of the rudder and, and, and let it go and see wherever it ends up. The, the idea is that we be vigilant to watch the course that we're on and to make corrections because we will veer off course. There, there will be those times when we will be tempted in different directions and so catch those and correct. Jesus is the chief shepherd and the Bible is our sure guide, but in the end, human error is still profound. It's still sinful men who are called to be shepherds and we can be lazy and impatient and selfish or, or, or craving attention or all of these things. And, and that's why course corrections must be constant. But we don't make them if we're not aware that we're going off course. And that's where the vigilance comes in. The willingness to, to be self-examining and have others examining so that there's voices that speak in and say, I think, I think you think you're going this way, but I actually think you're veering just a little bit and you're pointed and it's going to just head you into disaster if you keep going in that direction. And to call us back to make those corrections and not be afraid to admit we've gone off course. So pay careful attention. The other command, be alert, verse 31. This is the watchman. This is the, this is the watching around, the, the eyes out even beyond the walls of the church. This is the shepherd who not only is concerned to bring the whole counsel of the word and who is trying to be vigilant about watching his own heart and flock to make sure stuff doesn't erupt from within, but is also watching the surrounding culture, is also watching what in a broad swath is called the evangelical community and, and, and watching these things to see where are the trends, what's, what are the points of emphasis, what are things that are being talked about, is, is any of this a potential danger, is any of this potentially leading us away from sound doctrine, and calling out those threats. The people who, who teach in a local body, from those of you who have ministered in, in youth ministry to those of you who have sat with the little ones and, and, and taught through lessons on Sunday morning to those of you who led in home group, to Bible study. You are so important, not because of 
who you are as a person, preacher on Sunday morning, the Bible study leader. It's not because of who we are. It's because of what we've been entrusted with. Because we've been entrusted with something sacred, which is to feed the sheep. And, and, and error and, and lack of careful concern, lack of care with God's word, getting into untruth can cause destruction to the flock. That's why there must always be diligence to be concerned about who and what are we teaching. How, how is this being done? How are we communicating these truths? Because there's a, there's a principle at the core of all this. And we, we saw it in verse 28. And I just want to bring you back to verse 28 because this is, this is what should heighten our concern. This is what should grab us about all of these threats. Verse 28, of course, he says to pay careful attention. But at the end of it, he says to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That should be the, the driving priority behind why this matters why threats to the body matter and why we must respond to them biblically because the church is God's church. The reason that scripture shows God raising up and bringing down leaders, our, our function in that as a local church is recognizing God's work in raising up and bringing down elders, shepherds. The reason God is, is doing that is because throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, they are serving and caring for his possession. They are stewards of what he has purchased, and it matters to him. The church is an assembly of people who were bought at a price. That, that last statement in verse 28 is so rich in, in terms of just the theological depth to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Students of the Greek text labor over this because there's sort of a, a fascinating question that comes up here when it says that he's caring for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Some of you, in the, the, if you have the ESV, some of them have a footnote there where it says instead of church of God, it might say church of the Lord. Let me just try not to bore you for just a second on, on, on some translation stuff that I, I think is helpful. Our English translations come from Greek manuscripts, ancient Greek manuscripts, and they've, they've gathered them. Archaeologists have gathered them, and there's fragments of Acts, and there's whole manuscripts of Acts. There's fragments that go back to the third century. There's whole manuscripts that go back to the fourth century. And they, they bring these together, and they look, and they compare, and they go, yes, what we have is, is really the Word of God preserved, and it, it's consistent. But every now and then, you find these, these little slight variations, and without getting too complicated, the, the general rule for those who are translating is, let's try to make sure we're working with the oldest manuscript we can, because that's going to be the closest to when Luke originally wrote this. And if there's a slight variation, we're probably going to go with the harder one of those to interpret, because what probably happened is somebody who was making copies along the way sort of did like we might do, sort of tried to smooth it out a little bit and make it just a little bit easier. And, and that's exactly what we see here. Church of God when he says in verse 28 that the, 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 the flock, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, church of God is found in the older copies. And probably some well-meaning scribe at some point saw a church of God and said, well, God is spirit. God doesn't bleed. He can't purchase it with his own blood. So if we make this church of the Lord, then everybody will know we're talking about Jesus and, and his blood, and we'll just sort of smooth that out. And I would argue that, no, he's, he's truly saying the church of God. It's also possible to render the Greek here that God purchased this church, purchased the flock 
with the blood of his own is another way to say that. When it says with his own blood, it, it's just as easy to say in the Greek with the blood of his own, which is entirely consistent with a New Testament theme we see. When God speaks of giving his own and his own beloved son. And so Romans chapter 8, 32, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. All that manuscript stuff is to get to this. The picture in Acts 20, 28 is God gave his own son. It is the blood of his own son that is given to purchase this body of believers, this assembly, us, in order to bring us into his kingdom and to be a part of his church. Jesus, the father's own son, is the substitute who gives his blood and dies so that we might have life and we can be part of this treasure that he has. God could, could pay no higher price than the giving of his own beloved, perfect son in order to bear our sins and die in our place so that he might purchase us as his own possession. So Peter, again, 1 Peter 2.9, we're to live differently. Why? Because we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's what? Own possession. It's borrowing language from echoing back to Deuteronomy when Moses wrote, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. What a remarkable truth that is. And that's what verse 28 is getting at. That it is the, the Holy Spirit who makes elders, who makes overseers. Because while, while the church is comprised of its members, it belongs to God. It is his, purchased by the shedding of the blood of his own. And so God is uniquely at work in raising up and bringing down those he calls to shepherd. That's the, that's the prerequisite to all of this. That's why reading this matters supremely. That's why we should know these, these threats and these antidotes. That's why it's important that we proclaim the whole counsel, that we pay attention, we, we be alert to our own hearts and our lives, and, and, and we're vigilant, too, in, in looking out and watching for threats to the church because it's God's. As flawed and as foolish as we can be, God has chosen to entrust the care of this beautiful possession of his to shepherds. This sweet privilege that we have of serving and learning and growing in a flock that he has purchased with the shed blood of his own son. But there's one more thing. I know we're late, but I just want you to look at verse 32. Here's where the hope ultimately lies in all of this. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. There's the hope. Because even as Paul is looking into the eyes of these elders and knowing the potential for, for shipwreck even happening, for, for them to, to do something foolish, ultimately what he says at the end, I, 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 know, I know that you, like me, are foolish and sinful, and the potential for damage is there, but I also know the promise of the Lord of the church. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the very supernatural powers of evil will not be able to stop it. They will not be able to defeat it. Even through the leadership of foolish and flawed elders. One commentator put it this way, the future of the congregation belongs neither with the wolves nor with the shepherds, but with God. It is God's church. And that's why Paul, his, his parting to them is, 
I am, I am ultimately knowing. I'm, I'm not going here just saying, Church of Ephesus, good luck putting you in the hands of these guys. Hope they do good. He's ultimately saying, I commend you and trust you in the hands of Almighty God and the truth of his word. If you will rest in this and you will trust in him, he will continue to be at work and he will do great things. So when we teach the whole counsel of God, even the, the hard parts that, that are countercultural, when we hold our words and our actions up to the light of scrutiny of God's word to check our own hearts, and when we speak out against error that, that threatens the church, we're not, we're not flaunting our own intelligence or bravery by any stretch. What we're doing is we are being servants who believe with our whole being that the law of the Lord is perfect and has the power to revive the soul. And the testimony of the Lord is sure and will make wise the simple. Sound familiar, right? Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right. His commandments are pure. His decrees are true and, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, sweeter than honey. And that's why we hold fast to this and proclaim this, because it is in this that God has promised to hold us and in which we rest our confidence and hope in his truth, in his character, in his person, as he's revealed himself to us. Let's pray. God, you are so kind to rescue us. We've been reminded again of the exceeding high cost that our salvation was purchased with. That as sinners who defied your will, we were in need of redemption, and that meant the shedding of blood and only the blood of a sinless lamb. Only the spotless, perfect Savior could pay the price that would be sufficient to bear the judgment for our sins. And so, Father, we are, we are grateful that you have saved us for, a, for to be a, a possession of your own, a, a treasured possession. It is hard for us to fathom how we who stood so far apart could not only be brought near, but now be treated as this sweet, valuable gem to you that you would love as a flock of sheep, long for their care and their feeding and their protection. Lord, you equip us to do that by your spirit. Thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for the legacy of, of, of Grace Bible Church in this community for 30 years more of, of holding fast to your word and, and proclaiming it in this area and, and believing it. Lord, that, that, is, that is your grace. We, uh, we thank you for what you have done and pray that you will continue to do more. That within this flock, we will be attentive to watch our own and guard our own hearts. To help one another, to be alert, to look out for one another, to, to meditate on the whole counsel of what you have given us. We pray that you would be pleased to guard this flock. That you would guard the, the elders from error, from foolishness, from naivete, from letting down their own guard for being wise about what you have called them to do. But ultimately, we give you thanks because what has been done 
that is blessing, that has ministered, that has served, is your good work. We pray that you would continue to carry it on. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bring people, that you would use this body of believers to communicate your gospel, to talk about Jesus Christ, to love like Christ, and that you would use that to grow this body of believers. We pray that in all that we do, much as we've seen this morning, that we would be careful, we'd be thoughtful, we'd be committed to striving by your Spirit's enabling to stay on a true course that is consistent with your word, but also help us not to do these things just mechanically or pridefully as if we have our, our doctrine squared away and that's, that's it. Lord, we know that this church of Ephesus would, would a generation or so later be struggling because it had fallen away from its first love. And so we pray that in our ministry of your word, we would love you first and foremost glorifying you in all that we do, but also that we would love others. That our desire to shepherd, to care, to nurture, to feed would come from hearts that, that simply desire to love our neighbors, to show them Christ and to speak his truth. Thank you for the faithfulness of your character, the sacrifice of your son and the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.